Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we appreciate being back with you again after taking a couple of weeks off. I've been on vacation traveling in uh, Europe, mostly the UK, a little bit in France as well over the last couple of weeks. And so uh, it was a nice rest and a nice break from work, but I'm glad to be back at it again. And if you uh, follow the Beyond Devices blog, you'll have seen several blog posts from me just this week uh, in the last couple of days alone. So hopefully you're enjoying that and I'm enjoying being back into the swing of things. Uh, but we're also glad to be back with the podcast again. And so uh, we have a, a very earnings-focused episode for you today. So we'll be talking about many of the big tech companies' earnings that have been reported over the last 10 days or so while we were off um, and focusing on some of the big names. So Alphabet or Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Samsung, Twitter, maybe a couple of others that will throw into the mix there as well. Um, we're going to talk about this somewhat thematically. And so I'm going to start off talking about kind of devices and hardware, probably mostly focused there on Apple and Samsung. Um, we'll then talk about some of the ad-focused companies, so Google, Facebook, to some extent Twitter as well. And then we'll wrap up with a couple of the companies that don't fit neatly in those other categories, uh, Microsoft and Amazon. So that's what we're going to be talking about for the entirety of today's episode. We won't have a question of the week or a weekly pick today. We'll be back on our normal structure next week again uh, as earnings season ramps down and, and we'll cover some other interesting topics in that episode as well. So let's launch straight into this with uh, discussion about the device and hardware companies, uh, starting with Apple. Uh, Aaron, what was your take on Apple? What kind of stood out to you this time around? Well, it's funny how quickly um, the doom and gloom dies away once everybody's gotten the hang of it. I mean, right. Apple basically had two sequential quarters where iPhone sales were less than they had been year on year. And uh, the first one, which everybody knew was coming, the first one seemed to be a huge disaster. This one was still a, a drop in, in iPhone growth, and yet uh, because they, I mean, to be honest, relatively narrowly beat estimates, analyst estimates, um, everybody was happy and excited and seemed to have gotten things back to normal. So I don't know. I, I mean, it was, it was, uh, I, I was happy for Apple that uh, they didn't have another kind of overreaction, which is I thought what happened last time. Um, but yeah. uh, really it was, there were no huge surprises. I mean, there was nothing unexpected, but, that, but that's the thing is if you pay attention to Apple earnings, that's always the case. There's very rarely anything that's not expected. Right, right. Yeah, I know they're generally quite good with their guidance, so um, that certainly helps matters. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it feels like there's this emerging picture about Apple where there's kind of the short-term and the long-term, and this is always the case with Apple. There's always the short-term and stuff and the long-term stuff, but I think, um, you know, to my mind, that's the important distinction to make at the moment is there's a whole series of short-term things that happen to be going in a negative direction right now, you know, whether that's the... Um, kind of the anniversary of the iPhone 6 and, and the massive sales they had then and the, the comparatively slow sales that they've had were still well up on previous years. Um, whether it's iPads going through this interesting transition uh, and now starting to come out of it um, to some extent, whether it's Apple Watch, you know, now uh, lapping its launch and not having a new product and therefore in a sort of temporary lull, whether it's the Mac line that's incredibly... Uh, aged at this point by past standards and is, is very due for a refresh. You know, you can see right now there are all these drivers of kind of negative growth and as a result, obviously, revenues are coming down. Um, but over the long term, you know, even just in the fall, you will have new iPhones, 
uh, potentially including a new third option. You'll have uh, presumably ongoing iPad revenue growth, if not shipment growth, like we saw this quarter. You'll have a new Apple Watch, most likely, to drive more hardware sales there. You know, if there are new Macs launched between now and then, you can see really strong Mac sales as lots of pent-up demand gets unleashed. Um, and then you've got the ongoing growth in things like services. So. You know, there's potential there for medium term and especially long term uh, getting back to really strong growth again. And, and as you say, it feels like the market's finally got the hang of where Apple is for this cycle, but their share price is still well down on where it was. And so I'm very curious to kind of see what happens later this year as they get back to growth again um, and, and beyond that as well as, as we potentially see some other new stuff. Yeah, two things that stood out to me um, from the announcements that I thought were a little more interesting in the sense that, I, well, I guess you can't say the first one was unexpected, but they made a big deal again out of services. And that, that was a whole theme that we talked about in previous episodes. But uh, in this case, what was interesting about services was that Luca Maestri, the, the CFO, specifically went on his way to reference the fact that services are up as a percentage of revenue. Um, in fact, they're up 3%. But, uh, you know, you, we don't know exactly what caused that growth because, in part, some of that percentage of their revenue portfolio had to do with iPhone shrinking, right? right. So, so you know, I mean, it definitely seems like there's a lot of upside. I'm still trying to get accustomed to the idea of Apple being a services company, and I think a lot of people are. Um, uh, and so uh, that'll be an interesting thing to watch. I mean, the truth is, if you look across all of their, all their product categories, iPhone shrunk. iPad grew, but not in units. It grew only in revenue because right. because the iPad Pro is a more expensive device. Mm-hmm. Mac went down in revenue. Other products went down in revenue. So it really, the only one that saw growth, that, that and we don't know what the unit growth was because they don't measure services in units, but that was up 19% year over year, which, mm-hmm. I mean, double-digit growth is great, but it's not like it's anything gangbusters like Apple has seen in the past with other products. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think the, the other interesting thing about services that was mentioned uh, by Luca Maestri on the call was that not only had it increased from 8% to 11% of revenue, but he said it's even more that in terms of profitability. So that's the first kind of serious indicator that we've had that services is now a very profitable business for Apple. And I think a lot of people in their minds still have this old notion that, you know, iTunes is a break-even business and so on and so forth. You know, this is now a very profitable business for Apple in this category. And so as services grows, not only does that help with revenue growth, but it actually should help to increase margins as well, even as, you know, margins on certain hardware categories might be squeezed or might just be low early in the life cycle of a new product like the Apple Watch. And so um, that's going to help and kind of act as a bit of a buffer as well. Um, so that's that's interesting to watch. Um, the other thing that's worth noting is R&D spend continues to skyrocket. And I've certainly seen some others sort of talking about, oh, this is all about the car. And the, the fact is it isn't all about the car. If you look at that history of R&D spend, it's been going up for years and years, well before um, there was any rumor about car stuff happening at Apple, and certainly well before all the massive hires that they've made over the last couple of years. And so, you know, we can't simply say this is all about the car. And, and Aaron, you picked up on a comment on the earnings call that kind of relates to that as well. Well, that's right, because uh, into the call, Cook was asked about the R&D growth, which is it, R&D spending is at $2.5 billion a quarter now, but it has been growing. I mean, that's compared to last year, that's... Uh, 
a three quarters of a billion increase on quarterly R&D spending. So it is growing like crazy, and you're talking huge dollar amounts. And I think, and and Tim Cook chooses his words really carefully. So when he was asked about R&D spending, he said specifically that there is quite a bit of investment for products and services that are not currently shipping or derivations of what is currently shipping. And, and what stuck out to me in that statement was he said specifically that R&D spending is going not just toward products, because if that's all he said, then I think everybody would, could just read into it that it's all about the Apple car. But instead, he also included the word services in there. And, uh, and, and services do take quite a bit of R&D investment. And it's, it, it's going to be really curious to know what sort of services they're working on, because they specifically said that these are products and services not currently shipping. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And uh, hopefully, as I say, hopefully will, people will start to realize that, you know, this R&D spend explosion isn't just about the car, that it's about a whole range of things. And obviously, a lot of R&D goes into products that are shipping and just, you know, evolutions of those products. And that's a, always a big chunk of spending. And one of the reasons why R&D has been going up so much is that those product categories are now huge and you need a lot of R&D to, to help, you know, keep the innovation ticking over in those existing categories. But obviously a lot goes into categories that aren't yet shipping as well. Um, anything else you want to say about Apple before we move on to talking about Samsung a little bit? No, I'm sure we'll have a lot more to say in the coming weeks. It sounds like the iPhone 7 is going to be hitting in very early September, a week earlier than normal. So, mm, Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch yeah. that. Yeah. Um, okay, well, let's move on to Samsung then. And, and Samsung reported its results recently. They obviously had a device launch this week as well, the Note 7 uh, coming out. We'll talk about that a little bit too. But um, their earnings kind of continued a pattern that we've seen recently where um, over a sort of medium-term basis, their recovery has been continuing. You know, they hit their nadir a couple of years ago and have been recovering since in terms of getting back to some modest revenue growth as well as improving their margins as a result of that. Um, and we saw that continuing, but also on a more short-term basis, the S7 line seems to be doing really well for them. And it's, it's interesting to watch. I think this is indicative of what we're going to see in the smartphone market going forward is, you know, upgrade cycles used to be fairly predictable. Everybody upgraded roughly every two, two and a half, possibly three years. And so, you know, every year you knew that the people who bought a phone two years ago were, were in large numbers going to buy again. And uh, last year we saw that just not happen with the Galaxy S6. Um, this year, on the other hand, uh, Samsung's having a much stronger year for upgrades, and they fixed a number of problems in the S6 this year. But I think there was a certain amount of pent-up upgrade demand that simply didn't happen last year and is now happening this year. And so what you're seeing now emerge is this cycle where people upgrade in a much more conscious way. Um, and this is going to affect Apple in a big way too, that you know, if, if whatever new iPhone comes out, and last year with the 6S, this arguably happened a little bit with Apple, if it isn't considered a compelling enough upgrade, people will just sit it out and wait for the next year. And that has the potential then to turn the subsequent year into that much bigger an upgrade cycle. And I think that's certainly a possibility for Apple this year, depending on what they end up launching. But um, you know, for Samsung, they're having a really good this year, year this year off the back of the S7. Um, and uh, you know, we should put that in context. It's nowhere near as good from a revenue growth perspective, from a scale perspective, or a margin perspective as things were a few years back at the, when they were at their peak. But you know, they continue to be the other company in smartphones that's doing really well financially. Yeah, it'll be because Samsung is relying so much more on the higher end, and in the higher end of smartphones, it seems like upgrade cycles are feeling less and less urgent. They're stretching out. I mean, the phones are just yep. getting so good that people are willing to to keep them longer. 
you know, it's it, it's going to be interesting to watch if we see a pattern of a cycle with Samsung, like you're saying, but one that on the longer term is trending downward, um, mm -hmm. t simply because people are going to be happier with their with their with their high-end smartphones for a longer period of time. And yeah. I agree. I think Apple's going to have the same problem. In fact, that feeds into the rumors of the iPhone Seven not being a dramatic upgrade. Right. And we'll see if that actually plays out. But but uh, it it's, it definitely fits with the idea that that high-end smartphones don't have a ton of features to add anymore that are all that compelling. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. It's um. It's going to be interesting. I mean, we've we've heard about the form factor not changing much. I think there still will be some fairly significant sort of spec bumps and so on, and probably some other hardware stuff we don't know about. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, this is what I think is so dangerous about Apple potentially not upgrading the iPhone in this bigger way physically this year is that it's another reason for people not to upgrade in in what could have been a slow year anyway. So, it'll be very interesting to watch how that plays out. Um, you've just briefly rounding up some of the others. Lenovo hasn't reported yet, um, but LG, Sony, HTC. Uh, and a bunch of other uh, companies have in this space. And, you know, the trend there continues as well, where, you know, they're largely seeing falling smartphone shipments, you know, struggling on the financial side of things. You know, LG's been unprofitable in, in its mobile business for several quarters now. Sony recovered a little bit, but at much smaller size than they were in the past. What's interesting at Sony is that they've really scaled back their business to focus on the high end, and it's really worked. If you look at their ASP, it's getting up almost into Apple territory now. It's in the high $500. Um, which is way ahead of anybody else except for Apple. But, you know, that's in a much smaller number of shipments, and uh, they're just barely profitable at this point. So it's moving them in the right direction, but they're still, you know, kind of struggling to achieve really good profitability on that business. And LG, as I say, struggling. Uh, Lenovo will be very interesting to watch when they come out in the next few weeks because they've been struggling from a financial perspective too, trying to keep growth going. Uh, as their China business basically falls off a cliff. Um, so just, you know, as we've said before, continues to be the case that, you know, Apple and Samsung are doing super well financially. Everybody else almost continues to struggle. And, and uh, I suspect that will be a trend that we're talking about for some time to come. Let's move on to talking about some of the ad-centric businesses and um, Google, Facebook, Twitter as well in this category. Uh, what stood out to you, Aaron, from Alphabet's earnings this time around? It's hard not to just look at that other bets number of loss. It was, let's make sure I got the number right. Uh, where'd it go? $859 million in quarterly loss on right. the other bets on revenue of $185 million. I mean, that is mm -hmm. a huge, huge gap to cover. And, yeah. and, and these businesses in the other bets category don't have any sign of being rapidly growing businesses. I mean, fiber is going to take a really long time to roll out for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Verily has had some interesting things happen in the news lately, but doesn't seem to be a rapid growth business. Nest has had all of its dirty laundry aired um, through the press in the last three months. I, you know, I, I just don't know how Alphabet captures or gains that that covers that gap between their losses and, and the current revenue they're earning on those businesses. Right. Yeah, no, it's fascinating that that whole side of things, and it's it's um, there's been a bit more sort of financial discipline there. Obviously, as you mentioned, Nest and selling off Boston Dynamics and various other things, and so they do seem to be working a little harder to 
improve the finances there, but uh, it's still, you know, extremely unprofitable. You know, it's an improvement in margins to only negative 400% or something like that. So, <laughs> you know, it all has to be seen in context. But, you know, they clearly seem to be willing to make big investments here. And, you know, it's unusual in that it's been separated out in this way. At Facebook, you know, that stuff just all sits under R&D spending and you don't really get it right. broken out from the rest of the business and things like WhatsApp and Oculus that cost a lot of money to run but generate almost zero revenue today. You know, they're in a similar category. We've talked about that a little bit before. Um, but, yeah, it's it's still a massive, you know, loss every quarter. But the, the core business at Google seems to be performing extremely well. Uh, again, after a period of, you know, a lot of people questioning whether they could deliver on that. You know, their growth has been very strong. Um, you know, the, the U.S. has been growing particularly strongly over the last couple of years. It's coming down to earth a bit now, but, you know, international was kind of challenged by exchange rates for the last year or so, and they seem to be coming out of that. And there's a bit of a theme in earnings is that there's a lot less kind of reference to exchange rates as a reason for underperformance because I think exchange rates have stabilized a bit. Um, but, uh, you know, other bets still well under 1% of revenue. Um, so it's a small part of the business in revenue terms, but obviously a, a sizable chunk of operating loss at the same time. Yeah, and it really is a bad news first kind of thing, comment that I just made, because you're right, mm -hmm. the rest of the business is doing well and really came out pretty notably ahead of expectations, which is always good if you're a shareholder. Um, the you were, as we were chatting about this just a little bit before, you were talking about how Google's own website revenue was, I think, one of the brighter spots and more interesting spots. Yeah, so this is the interesting thing about Google. I mean, it's easy to see it all as one big ad business, but they do actually separate it into the Google websites and then their network, in other words, third-party sites on which Google ads run. Um, and, you know, they've always had these two different products, and yet... You know, the trend that's been very clear over the last several years is their own sites becoming increasingly dominant as a proportion of their overall ad revenue, and it hit 80% in Q2. So of their total ad revenue, their own sites are delivering 80% of that revenue. Uh, it took about five years to get from 70% to 80%, but, you know, their own sites have been growing much faster, you know, growing about sort of 25% versus sort of low single digits for third-party sites. And a lot of that's just the number of paid clicks on third-party sites has basically been constant for the last uh, two years or so, whereas paid clicks on Google's own websites are up 60%. Um, if you look at the cost per click, in other words, the revenue per ad, if you like, um, the uh, cost per click's actually been coming down on Google's own site by about 25% over that period uh, and going up slightly on third-party sites. But the, the sheer growth in the number of clicks means that Google's own sites are still growing much faster. And that's obviously driven by YouTube. That's driven by mobile being an increasingly important part, although they don't separate that out frustratingly, so it's very hard to gauge exactly how big that is. But um, the other important thing to note is if you're in the ad business, a big factor in how much money you make from all this stuff is what's called the traffic acquisition costs. In other words, what it costs you to get the traffic that then drives that ad revenue. And if it's on a third party site, you're obviously paying out a big chunk of the revenue to the host of that site. So roughly 70% uh, of revenue uh, from that third party business goes directly to third parties. Uh, so they only capture about 30%. So it's a very similar sort of economics to say the app store for Apple. Uh, whereas on their own sites, uh, traffic acquisition cost is largely things like third-party browsers and so on. So payments to Apple for Safari, uh, having Google as the default search engine, paying outs to uh, other third-party search engines for sending traffic Google's way. 
Um, you know, we know that the Apple chunk is a big chunk of that, but it's still only 9% of their revenue from their own sites that gets paid out to third parties in that way. So it's a much, much higher proportion of the revenue that Google gets to keep. So it's much more profitable in that sense. Um, and so it's a good thing for Google that this is the trend is towards, you know, more and more revenue coming from its own sites. Uh, but you were kind of pointing out an issue with that as we were talking earlier. Right. Well, because the problem is Google then has to be a media company, not just a, a web advertising company. I mean, if, if these other properties, as, as the shift to mobile sort of cements itself and mobile becomes the dominant internet platform for the majority of people in the world, if other people aren't using Google advertising and their mobile apps or, or mobile sites, and if uh, Google can't figure out a way to help them get better at advertising on mobile, Google basically has to be a media company, right? which is essentially like what the YouTube business is for them. They have to essentially be a media company to maintain their ad revenue. And that, that to me is not, it's not an exciting prospect when their bread and butter has been advertising, you know, through with third parties instead of on their own properties. Yeah, and you were saying, you know, on the earnings call, they kind of emphasized that the opportunity in enterprise, for example, as a way of kind of getting around that potentially. So they want enterprise services like Google Docs and, and cloud services and so on to be a bigger and bigger part of their business. And that's another future source of revenue that doesn't have anything to do with advertising per se. It's a completely different business model. Right. Um, and, but, and, you know, and, that's been important for them. And Ruth Porat did say in the call that, that other revenues were up 33%. And that the majority of that was uh, was cloud, but other revenue also lumps in like the the Play Store right. and also hardware yeah. sales, and so it's hard to know how much of that was cloud services and enterprise cloud specifically, or how much of it was was app growth. But um, but that that is doing well for them, and so there's there are signs of of a future that's much more diversified for Google, which is good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. It's it's and that other category has been pretty stagnant for some time now. It was actually declining for a while as they were they were challenged in Japan, for example, with the Play Store for various reasons. So, um, you know, it's good to see that growing again because it's been somewhat challenging for them for a little while. Um, let's talk about Facebook because uh, it's another big ad business, the other big kind of uh, internet advertising business. Very different model, obviously. Uh, essentially native, dominated by mobile. I think it's 84% of their revenue came, ad revenue came from mobile this quarter. Um, you know, it was only 50% back in 2013 and, and launched in 2012. So, you know, very rapidly become dominated by mobile, which is basically driving all of the growth at Facebook now. Um, but, you know, also another very successful business, you know, revenue overall 60% up on last year. Um, 95% of that revenue is ads, you know, so we've got this tiny payments business that's sort of steadily declining uh, as a percentage of the total. Um, what, what did you make about the Facebook results? Well, so Facebook is, um, how do I describe this? Facebook to me is looking more and more like America Online did in the 90s in the sense that it is the primary um, way that, that more and more people are experiencing the internet generally. I mean, it's essentially a web portal um, now more than ever. And it's not just, I mean, people aren't using Facebook anymore just to uh, check in on friends or family. They're using Facebook to find funny things or interesting articles to read, right? They, they, it is becoming increasingly the way that people experience the internet rather than just through web browser. And, and America Online crushed it for a long time financially. They did really well because they 
um, were that primary uh, vehicle or access point to the internet. And Facebook is that yeah. now, which is funny because they're not an ISP, although they have aspirations toward that too. But uh, but not being an ISP, which means really anybody can open a web browser and experience the internet virtually however they want to, it's fascinating that people are doing it so dominantly through Facebook. And that gives Facebook this incredible, incredible advantage when it comes to creating ad revenue, which has shown itself. I mean, they're making a crazy amount of money and they're, and, and, and the number of monthly active users they have is, is just, is massive. So, I mean, it's crazy that billions of people are experiencing the internet through Facebook on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah, and we've talked previously about some of the pros and cons of that from the perspective of, say, news consumption coming largely through things like Facebook and its right. ability to filter what people see there. But yeah, the, the user growth numbers continue to be absolutely astonishing. And, um, you know, they've got over half a billion users each in Asia and what they call rest of the world. So they've got the US and Canada as a reported region, Europe, Asia, and then rest of the world. So a lot of kind of Africa and um, Latin America and so on uh, would be in that category, but half a billion users in each of those regions. And then you look at you know Asia, the penetration of the overall population in Asia is still under 20%. Um, and so that's you know a big driver of their growth. Roughly half their growth in daily active users last quarter came from Asia. Um, the rest of the world is most of the rest, and only about 10, 15% coming from US, Canada, and Europe. Um, but they're adding almost 100 million monthly active users in Asia every year. Um, you know, it's just this phenomenal kind of juggernaut of, of growth. Um, and then the multiplier to that is their ARPU. Um, so their average revenue per user is also skyrocketing. And, you know, in the U.S., their annualized ARPU is now $50. So every user of every monthly active user of Facebook in the U.S. and Canada is generating revenue of 50 bucks. Uh, over the course of the year. Um, and that includes things like Instagram. And this is a criticism that I have of the way Facebook reports is that they don't include Instagram in their official user numbers that ARPU uses as a, as a factor. Um, but they do include the revenue from Instagram. So it's a bit misleading. But mm. the point is, um, you know, over all their products based on their total number of users, um, you know, it's $50 a year now in the US and Canada. It's way ahead of what they generate in any other region. And that, I mean, that's true for almost every internet company, but it also suggests that there's still quite a bit of headroom elsewhere for still growing ARPU, um, but uh, especially um, room also for, for user growth. I mean, they're at 1.8 billion users or something like that now uh, in the next little while, and yet, you know, in Asia, as I say, they've, they've barely penetrated, and mobile penetration there is much, much higher than that. So lots of, lots of headroom still for growth. Well, and mobile is another reason that Facebook is pulling this off, right? I mean, comparing mm -hmm. it to Google as an advertising company, Facebook, because they're a portal to the Internet, it doesn't matter to them if somebody's through doing it through a web browser or through mobile. Facebook is enough of a draw to get people to use whatever access they're using to get into Facebook, which is in, which is in turn their access to the Internet. And, right. uh, and, and that's where Facebook sits in such a great position um, mm -hmm. when it comes to, to, to mobile continuing to take over the way most people are experiencing the internet yeah no absolutely let's talk briefly about twitter because this is the kind of smaller company in this space um and often gets compared to facebook fairly or unfairly um and i think it's a natural comparison they're kind of the closest peer and always come off poorly in that comparison you know much smaller have made the transition to mobile um, at a similar pace but at a much smaller scale their, their user growth basically plateaued 
Um, you know, they're a fraction of the size of Facebook. You know, there's lots of these unflattering comparisons between the two. But, um, you know, they, they, even if you look at them in their own context, they had kind of a bad quarter in terms of, say, US ARPU, which was actually down, um, which, you know, shouldn't be happening, frankly, at this point. You know, we just talked about how high US and Canada ARPU is for Facebook now and how much that's been growing. At, at Twitter, it was actually down quarter on quarter, um, which... Uh, just should not be happening and it's interesting on the earnings call and in the shareholder letter that Twitter put out they kind of talked about basically their prices for ads are too high and they're not uh, providing enough of a premium in value to justify the premium in pricing and so that's one of their big struggles right now is that they're just pricing themselves out of the market and so they're putting a lot of effort into improving their product for both developers and advertisers but it just feels like why haven't you been doing this if you talk to anybody that's in the ad business they say twitter's product's inferior you know they don't provide the tools and the analytics and so on that you need to be able to uh, capture more ad spend and uh, it seems to have just taken them a very long time to fix this and that seems to be something of a theme with twitter where problems are identified for a long time before they ever get fixed well, and this, you know, this has been a theme. Like, this has been months, this has been years of, of the way we've talked about Twitter. I mean, yeah, it, 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 both on our podcast, but just the way people have talked about it generally. There are, there is management dysfunction within the company. There's a, a clear lack of cohesive vision and focus. I, I mean, they've, it, it seems like it's every few months to read about them losing some important executive. Just this week, they lost Natalie Karras as the, yeah. the chief, uh, um, is the head yeah. of communications, right, PR. I mean, and uh, and she was, she was there in time measured in months, not, not years. And, yeah. and that's, I mean, that's a pretty high fo profile position to be out the door so quickly from the time she came in. And I, you know, Twitter as it exists now is obviously not sustainable. And what happens in the future uh, is going to have to be done differently than the way that they're doing and have been doing things for the past few years. I think the push into video, especially live streaming, is, is an interesting one. We'll see uh, if they can build a new business there. But, you know, I won't be surprised if a year or two from now um, there are going to be very serious uh, acquisition rumors swirling around and Twitter's going to get picked up by somebody else. Yeah, I could even see it happening before that. I mean, there's always been some, there's also, there has already been some of that or now and just the combination of their valuation dropping and then um, right. the slow user growth and feelings that they're not getting it done basically is going to lead to more and more of that. I absolutely agree on that. Let's move on to talking about um, Microsoft and Amazon, two companies that don't fit easily in the other categories that we've talked about, but that, that do cross some of those categories as well. Um, let's start with Microsoft. Um, Microsoft's interesting. I mean, of the companies we've talked about, Microsoft and Apple are the only ones that are shrinking right now. Um, with Apple, as we already said, I suspect that'll be a temporary state. With Microsoft, it's felt more like a sort of semi-permanent state. Um, you know, none of their three big reporting segments are growing faster than 10%, and you've had uh, some shrinkage across several categories. Their reported revenues for Windows are well down. Part of that's about Windows 10 being offered for free. Part of it's about uh, reporting and the fact that they have to defer some of the revenue from Windows 10 because it's now basically being treated as a subscription rather than a one-off purchase. Um, but, you know, t this was also the end of Microsoft's financial year and on, on a, an annual basis in their 10K, they provide some interesting numbers. and. One of the sets of numbers they provide is a breakdown of uh, revenues from external customers across several categories that they don't normally break out. And uh, among those are advertising, um, so Bing primarily, 
Um, phone as a category. Surface is something they do normally break out, but it's, it's there as well. Windows as a whole, Office as a whole. And it's interesting to, to look at, you know, when they acquired the phone business from Nokia, it was obviously a very big acquisition. It was, you know, billions in revenue a year. Um, and yet, at this point, Surface uh, for the last financial year was uh, 4.1 billion in revenues. Phone was 3.36. So Surface is a bigger business for Microsoft than its entire phone business now, and that includes Windows Phone licensing and all the rest of it. Um, you know, and last year phone was almost was twice the size of Surface, and uh, two years ago it was even more than that. And so it's a pretty dramatic transition um, where Surface is now a bigger business. It's a bigger business than uh, phone specifically, but it's it's becoming you know it's five percent of Microsoft revenue at this point. The other thing that's fascinating is that the fastest growing uh, business when reported in this way at Microsoft uh, was not you know, any kind of cloud category that's broken out in this way. It uh, wasn't you know, any other big thing you think of. It was advertising. Um, their advertising revenue grew by 34% year on year. Um, and uh, almost everything else reported in this way shrunk. Uh, the only other category that, that grew at a decent pace was consulting and product support services. In fairness, cloud isn't one of these categories. It's kind of buried in various other things. Mm -hmm. uh, server products and tools include some of that, but that only grew by about 3%. So yeah, it's just funny, Microsoft, this business that you think of as Windows and Office, you know, that's 50% or less of their revenue at this point. Surface is 5%, advertising 7%. Uh, some of this other stuff's also growing. And so a real transition at Microsoft at the moment away from some of their historical strengths and towards some new things. Yeah, I mean, it, the way everybody is talking about Microsoft right now is that cloud is their future, and I don't think that's misplaced optimism. I think I think Microsoft has a chance to do really well that way. When you think about Azure, when you think about Office 365, it really does feel like they could make some substantial contributions. I, the way that they become really platform agnostic, for example, with Office 365 has been great. and. I think the more that they think of themselves as a service provider, especially through cloud services, I, I think that you know Microsoft has uh, has a lot of room to build a, a healthy business there, continue to build yeah. a healthy business there. But you're right; nothing right now seems to be like shimmering with excitement. <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah, no, it's tough. I mean, cloud is the one sort of bright spot, but they don't report it directly, and they've got various things. They talk about a cloud run rate, but it's based on the last month of revenue, so it's a bit misleading. Um, and uh, they don't break it out explicitly. They just talk about the run rate, and they don't they don't break it out as a category. And then when they do break it out, uh, it includes all kinds of things that that aren't comparable to what other people report. So Amazon right. does now break out AWS specifically. Google's even worse, frankly. They they just lump it into other, as we were talking about earlier. But um, you know the the cloud number at Microsoft includes lots of things that are sort of slightly spurious as as cloud services. Um, but uh, you know the the part it is growing quickly. It's just very hard to know exactly how big it is, and then secondarily how profitable it is for Microsoft as well, because it's buried in with a bunch of other stuff. Right. Uh, let's let's finish off by talking about Amazon, another company that obviously has a significant cloud investment. We we mentioned AWS just now. And what was your reaction to their results? Uh, AWS grew by over fifty percent year over year. It's yeah. now a two point eight billion dollar business. That is really impressive. And, uh, and it doesn't seem to be slowing. Um, it, it really is a, just a fundamental backbone to so many companies, and I think that's awesome. I'm sure when, when uh, Bezos set out to start Amazon, that wasn't even like on the horizon or even on his radar. Right. 
Um, but I love seeing companies build businesses. They, they get really good at something for their own needs, right? And then realize they can offer it to others. I, I love the I love the the, the natural genesis of, of products and businesses like that because those tend to be the really healthy ones. When you do it really well for yourself, it tends to work great for other people too. And it's cool to see it taking off and doing so well. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's been it's been an impressive business. Um, very high margin as well. That's the other thing. Right. I mean, uh, Amazon. Uh, its kind of core business is not that profitable. It's slightly more profitable in North America than it is overseas, but it's still a sort of fraction of the, the margin percentage that, that AWS generates. Um, and so, yeah, not only is AWS growing very rapidly, but it's, it's you know, hit 30% in terms of um, operating margin, excluding stock-based compensation. It's 25% if you include SBC, but, you know, the rest of the business is at 5% or less. Um, and so it's, it's obviously a factor in the fact that Amazon's margins have been improving. Um, having said that, the other big driver of the improving margins is, and this doesn't get covered nearly enough in my opinion, but is uh, the percentage of Amazon's units that they sell that come from third parties. So this whole fulfillment by Amazon and things like that. So that, that's just under 50% this quarter. Um, and it's been rising in this incredibly linear fashion. I mean, I have a chart where you can see the line, and it's virtually a straight line uh, up from about 40% a short while ago. And uh, it's the, the key is that on those sales, Amazon basically just reports its commission as revenue. And so it's very high margin um, because you've got some fulfillment cost in there, but um, it's, it's very high profitability. And so that's been driving margins too. So even if you strip out the AWS business and look at the rest of the Amazon, it would actually have been profitable over the last three quarters on an operating margin basis anyway. It's just that AWS boosts that even more. Um, so, you know, those two things, AWS in particular, and then this kind of increasing proportion of sales that come from third parties, which are very high margin for Amazon, those two things are really kind of driving this increase in margins that we've seen. Having said all that, you need to put that in context. It's increasingly profitable and is now at 3% operating margins over the past 12 months. So, you know, still a tiny fraction of operating margins at some of the other companies we've been talking about. Um, but, you know, that's, it's still a big improvement for them and it's something that um, they uh, are, are clearly benefiting from now um, in terms of their overall margins. Yeah, well, and that fulfillment business is another example of them being really good at something for their own purposes and then and then right. selling it to others because they got so good at it. I, I think one of the other things that's interesting and actually kind of surprising about Amazon is they are taking an increasing amount of profits rather than reinvesting, um, which they've done so much in the past and did for years uh, in their quarterly reports. They would they would basically yeah. say, we don't have any profit because they're sinking money into other things. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Amazon CFO kind of had to fight off questions a little bit about this. He said, right. uh, you know, I wouldn't take our financial results as an indication that we're running out of investment opportunities in any way, shape, or mm -hmm. form because right. Amazon investors have grown so accustomed to there being such slim profit margins. Now that profit margins are growing, they're, they're questioning, you know, you're running out of ideas to spend money on. So Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. They have they have scaled back their capital spending over the last uh, four quarters or so. It was a pretty consistently five percent of revenues. It's now down to four percent. And it's interesting. You look at Alphabet, um, which has been rising, and Facebook's capital intensity is in the mid-teens, which is about the same as a U.S. mobile operator, for example, that has massive capital spending requirement for keeping a network in place. So, you know, very different capital spending profile. One place where they're investing a huge amount is in headcount. Um, so they're growing at about 50% year on year. 
um, in terms of their total number of employees. They're averaging about 75 to 80,000 new employees uh, year on year over the last few quarters. Um, you know, and that's that's more new employees over the past year than Google has employees. Um, you know, so very very um, personnel intensive business, and obviously most of those are warehouse workers, and right. so their their revenue per employee is is dropping quite precipitously at the moment because they're hiring lots of cheap workers and generating sort of half a million dollars in revenue compared to the sort of two million dollars you might see somewhere else in a tech company. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, fascinating uh, business to look at, and uh, you know, again, as with some of the other companies we talked about, a real increasing diversification. You know, their their services business now generates about a quarter of revenue, and AWS is only uh, around nine, ten percent of that. Um, but uh, the rest of it comes from things like the fulfillment by Amazon, comes from Prime subscriptions, comes to some extent from advertising and credit cards and so on. But that's now a quarter of their revenue. So it's non-e-commerce revenue. Um, and so again, that diversification, you know, services uh, at Amazon, services at Apple. We've talked about talked about other bets at uh, Alphabet. You know, there's this there is this theme of kind of diversification beyond the core business that's fairly consistent across all of these companies. Yeah, you know, that made me think of a, and we can kind of, you know, maybe this is a nice cap to our conversation. There's a great article in the Atlantic uh, by Ian Bogos, who's who talked about how at the end of the day on Friday the top five companies in market cap were all what people generally call tech companies. Yeah. And in order it was Alphabet it was sorry, it was Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook. So that was mm-hmm. the top five companies in market cap. But what's funny is if you stop and really look at these you know, tech is tech is the way we lump all these together. And 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 this article made the great point uh, that uh, most of these companies are not really tech companies. I mean, Alphabet is uh, an advertising company primarily. Um, you know, Microsoft. I think we could say that that's definitely a tech company. The same is true for Apple. Amazon is a retailer. You know, I mean, we right. just did talk about mm-hmm. how they're making a ton of money off of AWS. Um, yeah. But really, primarily, they're a retailer, and and Facebook, yeah. you know, we we call Facebook a, a tech company, but they're a media company. And it's funny right. that we call them a tech company because we don't call the New York Times a tech company, right? right? Yeah. Even though they, you know, make money off of their website, and and mm-hmm. but we don't think of them as a tech company. We think of them as a as a media company, and and really, that's what Facebook is. Um, yeah. And so, I think it. I, I think. It just kind of shows how how much technology has kind of turned the world upside down in the last mm-hmm. two decades, because it has technology has been this tool for really reshaping the economy dramatically, and yet the fundamental businesses are the same as they've been for decades. Right. right? I mean, it's still yeah. media, it's still retail. It's just that the companies that have become really successful are the ones who are good at doing those things, but using technology to do it. And uh, yeah. it's really telling that we think of Facebook as a tech company, but not the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It makes me think of Mark Andreessen's famous comment that software is eating the world, right. and um, you know that, that it's basically taking over uh, everything to, to a greater or lesser extent. But the corollary to that, um, which is mine, is that almost nobody is making money directly from selling software anymore, right. uh, at least in the traditional way. You know, all these companies are absolutely software companies. You know, iOS and uh, Mac OS and all the other operating systems Apple has, you know, Windows, 
Um, you know, Facebook's obviously entirely a software company, um, but almost all the monetization is through either subscriptions, through device sales, through ad revenue, um, through e-commerce in Amazon's case, or from cloud hosting. Uh, you know, software may be eating the world, but it's not the business model that's eating the world. That's right. It's all monetized elsewhere, which is fascinating as well. And, you know, each of these companies has, to some extent, found a different business model that works for making money from their investment in software. Um, and uh, I think on a future episode, we might talk about this as something I've been toying with as a blog post, maybe a slide deck as, you know, kind of where the money is in tech across all the different sectors that we talk about because almost none of it comes from software sales and yet software enables all of it and so right. we'll dive in some more detail on that in a future episode but yeah great way to great way to end yeah sorry we're, did you have one more thing to just say? we're at the point where every company is a tech company it has to be yeah. you can't you can't run a successful big company mm-hmm. these days without being a quote-unquote tech company to be sort of the backbone of how you do your work right yeah absolutely well, great. That, that ends us very nicely. There is a nice way to wrap up um, our episode on earnings from Q2. Hopefully you enjoyed that. We enjoyed being back with you again. We'll be back on our regular weekly schedule again from here on out um, for the foreseeable future and uh, look forward to being with you again next week. So as always, check out the website um, if you want to see past episodes and so on. Uh, send us comments on Twitter or leave a comment on the website. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes. That helps other people discover the podcast. Feel free to promote us on Twitter or elsewhere as well. We'd love that. Um, we'd always like to grow our audience further as well. So thanks again, and we'll be with you next week.